0: page of the book, uh, you, you might recall we read one excerpt from the preface to Eureka when it says, Blessed is he that readeth, uh, and we wanted to point out that there are people in the uh, various walks of life, religion, or what have you, that that read, but uh, it, it's surface reading, and the uh, idea here is to... Uh, critically read and understand narrowly observe and uh, something of this nature uh, just incidentally not that it's a great point of interest maybe but if you, if you go to any of you who have Adam Clark's commentary and just start in maybe even at the very first chapter of Revelation and here is a, apparently a very worldly wise man in the uh, area of religion, I suppose, that that he, it doesn't take you more than a paragraph to say he knows absolutely nothing about this book, and yet he's compiled volumes and volumes uh, on his commentary on other parts of the Bible. But when he gets to the Apocalypse, he doesn't have the gospel or the things of the kingdom, and therefore he, he really can't expound it. So we're very fortunate when we can turn to these things and it says, Blessed is he that readeth or narrowly observes or understands this thing for what it's worth uh, and again we should be very thankful that we can the uh, idea here of this uh, Apocalypse being given to John for the benefit of the Ecclesia is one that we want to uh, stress as one of the foundational aspects of seeing it and understanding it so uh As we fit it together, and uh, particularly in its historical significance, we still want to keep in mind that our principles are the uh, ultimate result of the ecclesia's actions, which is to be incorporated with Christ as part of the Son of Man similitude that is defined in this first chapter. We commented earlier, again, we ran through this, we're going to run through it again a little bit, of the uh, seven ecclesias who are not uh, churches, as they are, are given here in uh, verse 4 of the first chapter, where it says, John 2, the seven churches are ecclesia, which are in Asia. And we know that those, uh, if you read on down through the chapter, that the uh, this uh, figurative Son of Man, of whom the head is Christ, and the body is the ecclesia, and probably we could say, if we were sort of drawing a picture of this like Nebuchadnezzar's image, that we would, we would utilize Christ as the head, the ecclesia as the body, but they're, they're together. One doesn't exist without the other. And that deity, somehow if we could draw a, a diagram, would be over and above these two features of the head and the body. That is also true as, as, uh, as, as I see it with the expression that he gives here in verse 8 and and again later in the chapter when he says, I am Alpha and Omega which which is the beginning and the ending. Christ is the beginning of this body but before Christ was, deity had to start things. So we we always recognize the the rank of deity, Christ, and those who are Christ. So in, in the figures that are given to us, we, we should always recognize that and I, and I believe it's also true in the 7th of Daniel where we read of the Ancient of Days that in the beginning deity was and had a plan and developed this plan through a head and body so that we can then see a figurative man who is able to stand up and to be recognized uh, as a, uh, a figurative immortal substance. The significance of seven is probably well known to all of us and that's why we have I believe the seven ecclesias uh, God could have given us two or eight or some other number but but the seven that are given to us are, are significant of the whole and uh, I don't know I, I've kind of it's been a curiosity they're placed in a uh, sort of a uh, crescent or semicircle in their geographic location as to the order in which they're addressed Ephesus and uh, Smyrna I forget the order uh, but as you go around and wind up at Laodicea uh, when it says the son, son of man or the son of Man's similitude stands in the midst of them actually geographically there would be a place to stand there I don't uh, I, I can't convince myself that this has any uh, particular meaning because in the midst just means as I would see it uh, where they can be contacted or spoken to and they are addressed individually in this uh, in the second and third chapters and uh, uh, we don't have to say well we're more like Philadelphia than we're than we are like Ephesus or that we're more like Smyrna than we are like Sardis because in those ecclesias are representative uh, factors or individuals uh, which we as individuals may or may not be. In other words, if we can accept the warnings, it's possible that we have uh, some Nicolaitanism in us. And if we do, we better examine ourselves. It's possible that we may claim to be Jews, and either we are or we aren't. We are the ones that have to make the decision on assessing ourselves. And it's very important that in each one of these uh, uh, addresses to the seven individual ecclesias, uh, in each case, there is an offer of salvation made to them. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the result in, if, if we just search down the, I'll probably find Ephesus here. Uh, I, the first promise, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Another one, uh, he, will make, uh, he will give to eat of the hidden manna. Another one, he will give, make pillars in the uh, ecclesia and things like this. Everyone, there's optimism. So even though in the church there are deficiencies, and we see that in each one of us individually and in each of our ecclesias, uh, I've often said the, uh, the definition, not, not exactly a definition, but an observation of the ecclesia is the ecclesia is a, an organization of weak people Looking to strengthen or better themselves, so so we're never in a position of where we can go and say, uh, "I'm going to rest on my laurels. I've reached the point of uh, of uh, being pleased with with my performance, and or either my ecclesia's performance. We have a real uh, healthy ecclesia. Well, the truth of the matter, we may have a degree of health in, in some instances, but at the same time, we're also struggling day by day uh, to either hold our own are to do better and I believe that lesson is well pointed out in the uh, second and third chapters which we're not going to comment on probably any more than this the uh, point number eight under chapter one mentions the uh, expression of uh, forever and ever uh, what, what is the uh, Greek word that, that's used here I think it's in the notes.
1: Aeon.
0: What does Aeon mean? Uh, actually, it means an age. Is it? Uh, is it uh, does it mean the same thing as when we read of, of deity being from everlasting to everlasting? no is it measurable yes an aeon is measurable how long is the millennium 1,000 years that's an aeon isn't it what was the aeon of Adam 930 so that so we can't say an aeon is, is 900 years and that's it uh, it is 930 in one case. It's 10 years in another case. It's 1,000 years in another case. And what is, as we've pointed in our notes, and it's also on the back inside cover, what is the aeon of sin and death?
1: 7,000.
0: Yeah, 7,000, because during the millennium we still have sin and death. So the aeon, of, it will not be until 7,000 years from the time of Adam to the time of the end of the millennium that this aeon, our measured space of 7,000 years by deity, will be uh, ended. And the result is is that sin and death will have had its day. And beyond that time, we move into a another period, which if you look at the back inside covers, is... Uh, uh, done there. That's, that drawing is by Brother Thomas, by uh, Hebrew symbol. Does somebody know what that means? What what is that Hebrew? It's beyond the millennium. It's an olam, which is a Hebrew word for aeon. Same thing. I believe that. I don't know whether it's the individual little uh, uh, insignia there. Odd. Ad, Ad beyond the. Uh, when what does it mean? I'm not sure. I heard an answer, but think it means just beyond. And again, I I don't think this has a a measurable uh, length to it. When when we get beyond the 7,000 years, we're not saying that's going to go another 8,000 or 10,000 or 20,000. It's just beyond, probably having some relationship to the uh, aspect of the nature of God uh, or infinity. God's beginning and God's ending uh, is not measurable, but man's being the uh, creature or creation of God is. Now, we would like to spend just a little bit of time, I, I, I think I told you, if, if, if not, I would mark at the top of my back inside cover, which I forgot to do, that that's from Eureka, Volume 1, page 109. So, And, and if you'll go to Eureka, Volume 1, page 109, for about two pages... Uh, Brother Thomas explains each of these numbers when their beginning and ending was and how he uh, arrived at them. I've, I've taken a little notes down below there to try to write those in. Sh- uh, uh, again, this, this uh, parallelogram, which is uh, A, B, C, and D in the uh, drawing, is 7,000 years. And if you'll add up all his numbers, which we've done there in the left column, you'll see that they add up uh, to 7,000. The little, uh, the first little insert there has no uh, length given to it, even though his last one you'll see has six years ascribed to it. So he really, I guess, technically shouldn't have, shouldn't have had that first little insert. But the first round circle of 1656 measures down from the creation date to the flood, which was 1656, and then the, then another little. Uh, uh, space there for 377 measures down to the time of the typical confirmation of the covenant uh, with Abraham and then 430 years later which is his next uh, I think he calls that a, a crescentic prefix which it means like a crescent so uh, instead of the full circle so that little 430 that he's got in there and we can see it's not drawn to scale uh, measures us to the, to the date of the exodus uh, many people, and, I, and I'm not too sure of all the uh, references in the Bible to the uh, 430 years, but many people uh, erroneously think that the Israelites were in Egypt 430 years. Uh, somebody tell me how long they were there, if that's erroneous. But, uh, about half of that, yeah. I, I, I've used 215, I don't know if I'm right or not but about half of that time in other words the giving of the confirmation to Abraham occurred while, while he was coming into the promised land out of Ur and from Haran and uh, and, and our dates or numbers run from that point so when Joseph went down into Egypt and the, and the 70 followed him and they came out as 3 million uh, the termination point was the passing through the Red Sea or the exodus or the 430 years so that would bring us down to that point and if we had some cumulative figure Uh, you can see how far along in the 6,000 or 7,000 that we were to that point then he jumps ahead 1,695 years to the destruction of the holy city by the Romans which would be 70 AD and again you can add subtract and work these out to see well uh, more or less why you might agree or might not agree Because you'll notice in the next number, the 1796, he figured was the return of Christ. Uh, I believe I've I've got that right in 1864, but if not, allow some latitude, 1868 or some other date, but roughly in that, that, uh, that decade. So Brother Thomas felt that Christ was going to return in 1864, or thereabouts, 1868. Uh, And if we added 40 years, which he does in his little drawing, another crescentic prefix to that final circle, uh, which he allows a 40 year, I have hour of judgment. Now he divided the 40 years into 10 years of preaching of the everlasting gospel and 30 years. Of pouring out, or one hour, which would be one twelfth of a of a day. There are twelve hours to a day in, in the measuring of prophecy, and not twenty-four. Twenty-four would be a day and a night, but a day would be twelve hours. So one hour would be one twelfth, or thirty years. So here, your hour of judgment plus ten. Uh, carries you over into that to the end of that prefix and then you're into the millennium which lasts a thousand years and he allows six years beyond the millennium for the uh, uh, rebellion or giving us a total of 7,000 years and then then the end of your parallelogram he has the the balloon out at the end which is odd olam or beyond now below that I've taken the dates uh, from W. H. Carter's book *Times and Seasons*, which was written in 1961, and Brother Carter's feeling uh, are the thrust of his uh, writing. And that, that book is basically chronology, as opposed to an analysis of the apocalypse. He felt that the likely date of Christ's coming was 1972. So that's why I have taken one, two, three, four. There's six items we list down there, and this is very condensed. Do you realize? That I say return of Christ, not his date? Because I, I could put in 1972, which would alter that by 20 years. Uh, and if you mentally want to do that or make some kind of pencil note there at the side, his date would have been 1902 years from the previous date, which was 70 A.D. So if we take 70 A.D., add 1902, we would get 1972. I have arbitrarily added the 1922, which added to 70 A.D., brings us to 1992. And I think I told you in the opening day that my basic reason is that I feel that the 1260, 90, and 1335 years of, of Daniel 12 seem, from present observation, to fit better into that than anything else that I've seen. Uh, the 1260 particularly is uh, significant in that so many things happened in 1917, which seems that the Lord was marking that date off both by a termination of uh, Muslim calendars, by the Balfour Declaration, by the drying up of the Euphrates, by the, uh, by, the uh, in, by some people's mind, the uh, end of Gentile times beginning. And I felt very strongly that that had, had something to do with the uh, measuring of the Babylonish kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar, which lasted 70 years, and that, that possibly from 1917, 70 years down the line would bring us to 1987 and maybe the return of Christ. Well, 1987 has come and gone, and, and that doesn't uh, fit. Uh, so if, if we ascertain our... our speculate that 1917 was the end of the 1260 which would have to be measured from some uh, date relative to the abomination of desolation uh, and that's rather indefinite but, but it would be 657. Omar took Jerusalem in 637 maybe started the building of this abomination in, in uh, 20 years later and it was concluded by his successors maybe as late as 691. But measuring from 657, which I recognize is not all that solid, we come to 1917, 1947, 8, which was the establishment of Israel, and then uh, 45 years later to 1992, which may very well be the date of Christ's return. And the next one, I, I had to plug the figure, the judgment of the nations to get from 1992 to 1997, allows us five years. I would be the first one to say there's nothing in the Bible that says there's a five-year period that certain things are going to be done. We are told that when Christ comes that he's going to pour out judgment, the seven thunders or seven last plagues. So uh, that's part of the work that is to be done. People speculate. uh, In fact, I think uh, several of us may recall having either talked about it privately or otherwise that the prophecies in... uh, in Ezekiel, where it speaks of, uh, of seven years to uh, clean up the land and seven months to bury the dead, uh, keeps being compressed into such a period as to as now as to either those figures are going to have to be uh, disputed, or uh, made to be figurative, or some other treatment of them in order to fit all of this thing in. And then somebody says, well, when's the temple going to be built? And when's this going to happen? And when's that going to happen? And it it leads you into a a variety of of opinions, some of which may be reasonably good, and some of which cannot be uh, proven at all. So I've only plugged that five five years in there and, and do not have any substantiation that, that there are going to be certain marked-off events that will take place. But it only leads us up to the millennium, which I, I would uh, suggest, as we have in, in, in uh, here, that it would be about 1997. And again, the reason we say 1997 is we rely on a 4004 B.C. creation date. Somebody showed me their uh, Chronicon, Hebricon here a day or two ago, and the date that Brother Thomas puts in there for creation is 4089 B.C. He also gives in that book, which I, I think is a very worthwhile uh, addition to your library because we're not treating merely of, of the creation date but of many other chronological measurements. But he gives all kinds of uh, uh, so-called authorities that gave a creation date, some dating back as far as uh, nearly 6,000 BC, 5884, and uh, uh, all, all sorts of dates. Take your pick. Uh, I believe that the 4,000 can be tabulated, or 4004, from biblical uh, records. And it would uh, be a long project. Uh, And what you would have to do would put down your first year from Adam to his, uh, not to his 930 years, but to the birth of his first son. And that son lived so many years and begat somebody else on down. And then the 430 years and 480 years uh, and work all these together And I don't think there's been a lot of dispute on what we call modern times, that is, from the time of Christ on to us. Nobody says, well, the date of Constantine was 400 rather than 312 to 325 or 337. He died in 337. Constantine was born, as I recall, in 287 A.D. So when he ascended to the throne about 312, he would have only been about 25 years old. And he had had uh, only a third portion of the throne until he eliminated his uh, competition and had sole rulership. Let me see, I should probably... Uh, oh, the bottom uh, photograph or our drawing there is taken out of the book, Apocalypse Epitomized. And bro- uh, Brother H.P. Mansfield gives his views there and, of course, by seeing the picture, you really can't get his arguments. Uh, but he doesn't just pick these figures and say, I think that's a good number. Uh, it, it appears to him that at the return of Christ, there will be 50 years of judgment. And, and you'll have to look at his book. He gives a reason for that. I've, I could only put the diagram here. And then after that 50 years, the millennium would commence. And then we have a thousand years reign of peace. And after that, there is a 50 years little season, which I suppose would be ascribed to the period of rebellion. And then after that, all of sin and death is taken care of. Now, to justify that, much like the first drawing of Brother Thomas's, if we have today, we know we're living in 1989. If Christ came today then the 50 years period of judgment by our calendar would be projected to 2039. And if we say, well, fine, that's a good year, 2039, somebody then must say, when was your creation date? And if you say 4004, then you've got 6042 or 3 years from Adam to the start of the millennium. I don't believe that. I, I, I can only suggest to you that my feeling is we have 6,000 years, that on the, on the hour or day or month or whatever we want to calculate of the 6,000, that the millennium will start. This, this diagram at the bottom, unless he says creation date was 3970 or something like that, will not fit the 6,000 year scheme, neither will the 50 year period at the end. If the thousand years' reign of peace ends in the year AM 7000, then we go 50 years into the eighth day, so to speak, uh, to cover this last diagram. So I I really don't subscribe to it. I only show it to show you uh, another person who undoubtedly is much smarter than I am in in many of these things, but uh, there it is. And the same way with Brother Thomas, he has to use a 4089 B.C creation date to get his uh, figures to come out and even then his projected date for the millennium or the last one I think he gave was 1908 would only come out to 59 90 uh, something it didn't come out to 6,000 uh, I would be more likely and of course I've, I've doctored up this middle schedule a little bit but I, I feel that's closer to, to the uh, aeon of sin and death I guess we could call it the coming with clouds that that's uh, given to us in uh, in this Son of Man similitude in the first chapter is important. Clouds, as most of us know, and if you don't, we'll repeat it here, is used on occasion in Scripture to signify uh, peoples, multitudes, nations. Uh, some people say clouds and crowds because they may rhyme. Uh, I don't think uh, etymologically they're they're kin. But uh, anyway, clouds of people, or multitudes, are associated with this Son of Man. Incidentally, I heard uh, just a week before I came up here, I was talking to somebody, and they said, uh, uh, somebody is in our ecclesia, now, now that's a vague term, when you say our ecclesia, maybe it's one person in our ecclesia, and I'm not talking about my particular ecclesia, uh, don't like this term multitudinous Christ. I says, what do you mean? They they, they would prefer some other term like Christ and the saints or uh, Son of Man similitude or something like, oh, no, no. They don't believe there's going to be a multitude. I said, well, I says, I haven't heard this in a long time or, or if ever. And I says, I, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. I says, because uh, no matter what you call it, I says, that is the picture that the apocalypse gives us. Otherwise, you know, if if we really reduce this down to logic, it would be saying God is is the great uncreate and that his only begotten Son is Christ, who is a manifestation of himself. And that's about it. God and Christ. The whole purpose, if we go back to the law of Moses or, or to the time of Noah or Adam or the time of the kings, the Old Testament, preaching of Christ the Ecclesiastes in Paul's day is to take out of them a saved people. It's to add to this single Christ and expand Him to a multitude. And that is the wish and will of God. It's the very meaning of His name. And I like that expression given in Eureka that it says Yahweh named Himself. Now this wasn't some name He inherited or uh, just took like you and I may be John or Jack or Bill. Yahweh says, I will be manifested in a multitude. And if we believe that name, then we see this multitude. So I, I'm, I'm certainly one that's not going to be intimidated and say, well, I can't use that term, multitudinous Christ. It's a beautiful expression. It's an expression of truth. And it's the key, in a broad sense, to the book of Revelation and the gospel as a totality. I wanted to read uh, a section here relative to the uh, Behold, He cometh with clouds. And and the reason I'm um, making reference to this is uh, to sell the book again. uh, As I said, read piece by piece or bit by bit. This is an excellent exhortation section. I'm trying to say don't consider Eureka as some kind of dull history book that tells us that somebody reigned in the year 800. It is incorporated with the essentials of the gospel. And here's where he says it as well as he does in the whole book. He gives reference to three scriptures, which I'm not going to read. One of them, I believe, is Revelation 16, 15, where it says, Behold, I come as a thief. It was referred to last night. That's what we're waiting for. The return of Christ as a thief to the unsuspecting world. The other two references he gives are Matthew 26, 27 which says, in, in a short synopsis, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with all the holy angels with Him. And, and Matthew 19:28, which says, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on His throne, the twelve apostles will also be uh, in that picture. So He says, these three testimonies, Jesus plainly teaches, six points. One, that the Son of Man will come in glory and power. Now, see, many people say, "Well, I didn't know Revelation was was talking about that. that." It's supposed to be talking about, uh, you know, political events in the year 800. No, it's the Son of Man coming in glory and power. The reestablishment of David's throne. The kingdom of God that once was here being reestablished under Christ. Number two, that he will come with holy ones. Now, whether we associate that with the angels or, or the saints... It still fits. I, I believe it has reference uh, to the saints. Three, that he comes... Uh, trying to analyze this, and, and it, I think it was helpful. Many of these things are helpful even, we don't, even though we don't arrive at a, an exact answer. And I think that's what makes the Bible uh, continuing uh, benefit to us. And uh, if somebody has to apologize because they, uh, they talk about the third chapter of Genesis again... They don't have to apologize to me, I'll tell you. I said, it's it's something we need to hear, and it's something that's always alive to us, and and none of us really master it in the sense of of having it within us completely. It doesn't mean there's a mystery there that we don't understand, but it benefits and strengthens us to repeat this thing. So uh, when we say Alpha and Omega, we're talking of the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It has 24 letters in it, which is... Probably very significant in the fact that uh, that God wants us to know of the 24. That's double the number of the tribes of Israel, and, and we're talking of an Israelitish uh, scheme of things. And Christ says of himself that he's the first and the last, or the beginning and the ending. In other words, we start really the program of salvation with Christ, even though he's born 4,000 years after Adam. Christ was, as Abraham says, before I was. I have that verse jotted down here somewhere. I believe it's John 8:56, 56. Uh, which, when we read that, at least chronologically in the Bible, we're not to the book of Revelation when we're uh, in the book of John, but, but it helps us to understand. Uh, Christ speaking says, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now the individual man, Christ, was not born. But Abraham's faith was based upon Christ, his coming, his his first appearing, and his ultimate glorification. So this is essential to the understanding of the Alpha and the Omega. Again, as I commented earlier, my my, uh, understanding at this point is that the Alpha and Omega starts with the Father, it advances or progresses in the Christ individual, and it matures in the uh, totality of the group. Uh, there is a. I have to sort of be careful in reading these things because some of them are so long, and we don't have that much time. Uh, here's a short paragraph on the Alpha and Omega. I think that may help us. It's at the bottom of page 127. If you want to make a note of uh, Eureka 1. Thus the body, and he's talking of this multitudinous symbol that's shown to us in chapter 1. We have a head and a body with feet and feet and different garments about it. It says, Thus the body is pierced with suffering as well as its head. So we're talking of the saints, theoretically, from here down. And and we know that the head itself suffered even unto death. Uh, Thus the body is pierced with suffering as well as its head. And as Jesus, though a son, learned obedience by the things which he suffered, so all his brethren must... It will be seen then that when the one body is complete in all its elements, it will have been a suffering community. I think we'd all agree with that. This is its alpha, its beginning, its who is, or present condition. Most of its members are in the womb of death, shut up within the gates of the invisible, which are so securely locked that no power can open them save that which is eternal. The key or power is with Jesus through whom it will operate as it did upon Him when the power or spirit of the Father raised Him from the dead. So maybe that just short synopsis there may help us understand that that there is a, 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 a condition of this a vision or picture that's given in Revelation 1 that tells us there's a process of redemption that starts with the Father's plan, with the begettal of His only begotten Son, with the incorporation of the faithful who believed in Him before He came and those of us who believe in Him after He came and, as it were, cast our lot with Him. The Omega, of course, will be the finishing our immortal stage of this. Once it's finished, the completion uh, will be effected. When John announces that he gives, uh, receives this vision, or not, not receives it, but, but the vision that he sees, point number uh, 12, that he was in spirit on the Lord's day, says that uh, John, in receiving a vision, is, is not uh, going through some ordinary experience and, and figuring this thing out. It's, it's shown to him, as, if he, as I see it, as if he were in a trance. When we think of the holy men of old, such as we mentioned Moses here earlier, and writing the account in Genesis 2,500 years after it happened, uh, some unseen and, and great power had to motivate or say to Moses, pick up the pen and write what I'm telling you to write. There was don't ask any questions, as it were. The inspired author is going to accurately tell you everything to write down that happened in the Garden of Eden and the uh, flood in Noah's time and, and all the other things that are recorded uh, in the early chapters so with John in the Apocalypse he was in vision which I guess means his, his mental or moral faculties of his own are blocked out and he was in spirit that is, he was controlled by the higher power Maybe in, in uh, well I don't even think it justifies comparison of saying people that think they got the Holy Spirit today they can speak in tongues or, or do these miraculous things. They, they, uh, they always back down when you ask them to raise the dead or do something beyond... In other words, they can hold the wool over your eyes and say, I, I am in some kind of a spiritual uh, state of mind here uh, and speak in tongues and do these various things. But, but John here, I think we're told that the Spirit is more powerful than the flesh. So when the Spirit dictates that this be written, that's the way it was uh, brought about. And when he says, I was in spirit in the Lord's day, it means he was projected to a time future. John was living on the Isle of Patmos, uh, imprisoned there or exiled there in the year 96. So he's projected down 1,900 years later. So what God is saying, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. He doesn't give him a date. All he says, in the Lord's day. And the day of the Lord is what we read in Revelation 16. This is what comes as a thief in the night. That day, which is yet future, is going to come on the scene. Uh, that's the day that Abraham saw. He saw both forward to the Christ's first coming and he saw the Lord's day. There's another verse or two we might turn to for support of that. 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, starting at the third verse. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, and I believe that's speaking of the Lord's day, shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time." For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. This is really a a nice uh, reference to the book of Revelation because not only does it tell us the Lord's day, which is the coming of Christ, it tells us that starting in Paul's day, that the uh, man of sin or son of, son of perdition is going to be gradually uncovered or magnify himself. He opposeth and exalteth himself. We've seen this, and, and it's again, the, uh, the Apocalypse, that's the great object of the Lord's wrath in the Apocalypse. The whole of the Apocalypse is the victory of Zion over Rome. So here's Rome being defined and warned by the apostle to the Thessalonians. Uh, he's telling us that in that very first century, that uh, in verse 6 and now you know what withhold or what was restraining this man of sin development it was paganism so as long as paganism there was there holding power and rule over the uh, uh, then known territory uh, pseudo-Christianity could not raise its wings and begin its uh, long hundreds of years uh, of usurpation of the power of, of deity so that that uh, that little reading out there gives us two or three Uh, hints and tips to the apocalypse Uh, going back to the Old Testament uh, reference we would go to there would be Joel the second chapter Uh, and again remember if you're reading the first volume of Eureka I forget how many pages maybe nearly a hundred pages are given to a consideration of the apocalypse in the prophets so the, the apocalypse is in Jonah it's in Malachi it's in Jeremiah you name the prophet it's there The day of the Lord and the manifestation of the multitudinous Son of Man. A reference I have is Joel 2.31. It says, and again, remember Joel is prophesying here several hundred years before the birth of Christ and of course thousands, a couple of thousand or more of the uh, day of the Lord. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Now just... That in Joel's time, a prophet speaking to the ecclesia or to the true Israel of God is saying you people should know something about the coming day of the Lord. Again, he doesn't say it's going to be next year or a hundred years from now, but in your total faith, the substance of that faith is to be a recognition and a belief that the day of the Lord is what we're looking for to solve man's promise going over to the third chapter in the second verse where he says I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land that I believe is in the day of the Lord the day of the Lord is not a 24 hour day but it is a time which I believe we can accurately describe as post-adventual and premillennial, which we have charted in the back of the book and again with some apologies we don't don't justify that if the Lord doesn't come till 1993 the figure is going to be four or if he doesn't come till 1996 the figure may be one uh, unless, unless again there are some uh, uh, unless we're wrong on, on that premise but but between his coming and between the uh, elimination of his opposition is called the day of the Lord it's the day when he's cleaning up the problems that prevent the millennium starting on a, a clean footing. Again, we, we spoke of, of the multitude of the Son of Man standing in the midst of these golden candlesticks, which are the ecclesias, and which are whose responsibility, uh, as we'll see in, in the second chapter, is uh, is in the hands of of angels, our star angels, our rulers of these ecclesias. Now we, we want to be careful to understand uh, that, that we don't have ranks, that we don't have somebody that's president and vice president and subsidiary president in the ecclesia. We're all one as Galatians 3 tells us. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or free. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. But the but the responsibility of the ecclesia's leadership and direction and holding fast to the principles of the faith is Charged to the uh, various words presbytery which some people don't like because it sounds like Presbyterian but there's nothing wrong with the word presbytery or elders or star angel or some such wording. So the the direction of the ecclesia has to be uh, supervised if you will as long as they're supervising it under the uh, correct principles by those who are are capable of doing so and and have the responsibility of doing so. Uh, A reference to that, we might go to Acts 20, the 20th chapter, and verses uh, 28 to 30. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers. Now this is, this is, I don't even know who's writing here, but he's writing to the ecclesia. Uh, he says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And so he's saying to the elders, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock or the ecclesia over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers. My guess is that that's, that's the word for presbytery or, or elders or something like that. To feed the ecclesia of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, this is Paul speaking, isn't it? Shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. So it's possible if we took the word elders to mean the oldest, maybe in point of age or point of service, it's possible that he might, as verse 30 suggests to us, uh, depart from the one faith drawing away disciples who are not well grounded in the essentials of the truth and therefore this, this would have been a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing as it were but the responsibility is, as the apostle warns here is to the overseers or those who have the rule over the ecclesia to guide them and call their attention to these principles whereby they can stand fast and await the day of the Lord the candlesticks are patterned after the uh, mosaic. I think we had a picture on the screen here a few days ago of the seven branches that, that uh, come up out of that common base. And I believe that's why the translation of light stand is preferable uh, to candlesticks. If we have seven candlesticks, we have one, two, three, four, and there, and there are seven individual protrusions uh, from wherever we place them and therefore there's an independence possibly of each of these in other words Ephesus can, can say to Smyrna you're not like me and we don't have the same uh, gospel or, or way of thinking or Philadelphia can say to, to uh, uh, Sardis that, that you and I are different. Ecclesias if they are the ecclesia are one and unified and they draw their oil or their strength from a common base so that's why we have in the in the uh, uh, specifications uh, used in the uh, mosaic arrangement one base and seven protrusions, which are which is the Jewish menorah in the, uh, picture, like we saw on the on the screen here the other night. So I think that's that's well to remember that that if if that base represents Christ and His gospel or His plan of salvation, all ecclesias draw and and they're uh, burning brightly, hopefully, is is because. They are being uh, secreted this oil from a common base and I believe that, that if, you're, if it's helpful in any of the notes you might be jotting down that picture is given very well in the fourth chapter of uh, Zechariah where, where a very similar uh, I'm not sure what it's called uh, but a similar figure of where there's a, a base that generates oil uh, upward to the uh, to the saints I could I'll just read a couple of references I have down here on the son of man similitude we've talked uh, given it as much time as we can here Daniel seven thirteen, and Revelation 19 verses 11 to 16 so this son of man is not not new to the apocalypse Daniel spoke of it and uh, and probably indirectly some of the other prophets I don't have any specific reference down here now we said that the angels of these ecclesias were going to spend just uh, maybe maybe the rest of the class on this second and third chapters which are the two chapters dealing with the messages to the ecclesias and, a, and, a, and an individual study if somebody says I, I'd just like to take a little time and study these two chapters would be fine uh, I think you should go beyond that but but spend a little time uh, on the uh, uh, seven ecclesias and the, and the uh, letters written to them because contained in those letters I, I let me see. I don't know if it's worth, uh, and I don't know if I can find it that quickly. Uh, in uh, Apocalypse Epitomized, maybe I'm getting the index. He gives a uh, a chart in here. I guess I better go over. Maybe after, the, after all the letters are covered. Uh, well, sorry, I can't find it. Uh, he gives a chart, which is very easy to pick out without a book. You can go to the second and third chapters. But he just diagrams. Here's the first Ecclesia Ephesus. And he'll say verse 1 and 2 gives us the commendation. And then verse 3 gives us the criticism. And then ver, uh, verse 4, I forget what his other column says, but... But in each of the ecclesias, there is a, uh, uh, an analysis made of what good points they have and what bad points and the warnings and what have you. Well, that's, that's basically the letter to each ecclesia is if you've got something to be complimented for, the Spirit announces that. If you've got something to be criticized and warned about, the, the same thing happens. And then it, it winds up, He that hath ears to hear, give consideration to this. And then there's a promise to the overcomer. Every letter is written with that. In the uh, case of the ecclesia of the the final one, there is no nothing given that could be uh, that he could commend them for. They were a, were a uh, an ecclesia that was so absorbed with the things of the flesh. I guess we could say very generally that they were producing no spiritual light. Brother Thomas also probably in one of those numbers I gave you t- in the t- circle in your back of your books tabular analysis or somewhere. I believe it's that one that's on page 387, maybe, of volume 1, that he says these seven ecclesias are also predictive of the states of the ecclesia as we go along from John's day. In other words, the ecclesia... uh, I have jotted the dates here on the side. I'm not going to read them all out. But but from 96 to 110 was the Ephesian state of the ecclesia. And from 110 to 312, which would be the, the Constantinian era was the state of the Smyrna and then Pergamos from 312 to 606 which would be the focus time
1: uh,
0: again you'll have to read it I'm, I'm not at all qualified to uh, tell you why he thought that time was, was more uh, Pergamian than it was Smyrna and he goes down to Thyatira for about a thousand years from 606 to 1572 and Sardis from 1572 to 1847 and Philadelphia from 1847 to 1947 I believe I've got Brother Thomas's dates but he rarely it's kind of surprising that he, he went to 1947 maybe that's not his date and then he says the Laodicean age would start in 1947 if those figures have any substance 1847 would be about the time of the writing of Elpis Israel when the truth was more or less revived and he's sort of suggesting the Philadelphian which was one of the ide- most ideal of the seven ecclesias sort of a healthy state that, that maybe the truth prospered in that hundred year period i uh, the truth did uh, begin and, and prosper to a, to a great extent but it also had, had many problems such as we have today uh, whether, whether or not in 1947 we start going downhill I can't tell you but uh, anyway it's, it's something for the, for the student to perhaps take an interest in and see if he feels that these, these seven ecclesias are predictive of the uh, uh, health of the Ecclesia which means that when if, if that is correct it means that we are in a very an age and not talking about the world about us we're talking about the Ecclesia within that, that Christ would say to us today you're lukewarm I'm sorry but that's your condition uh, and we, those of you who are not familiar with lukewarm uh, in most uh, cases where where we uh, have these temperature, shall we call them. Cold is very desirable when we're talking of ice cream. And hot is very desirable when we're talking of of, uh, cooking a steak or something, if we're talking food. Uh, But lukewarm is not good with ice cream, it's not good with steak. So, So somebody with a lukewarm attitude, neither hot nor cold, apparently by the message given to Laodicea, is in worse shape because the spirit says I would that ye were cold or hot in other words be real uh, effective in whatever course you're taking Now that doesn't say I would that you were real evil or real good it means that that your your behavioral patterns should be to the furthest extreme which is, is which is ice cold or red hot as it were and, and you will then be uh, as the spirit sees it very energetic and and uh, uh, at your very best but lukewarm signifies disinterest and self-satisfaction and as he says here they need eye salve they need somebody to rub something on their eyes where they can can see better and we again have to examine ourselves as individuals in ecclesias to see whether or not uh, we're in that Laodicean state